The world has to overcome not only the damage done to our economies and our societies by COVID-19. Getting lost in the whole debate. So let me make this really clear. The internet and VR are are mutually exclusive. You cannot have the internet, you cannot have the metaverse without VR, and you cannot have VR without the metaverse in any substantial way. So yes, it's gonna be cross-platform. Uh, sure, you'll be able to get somewhere on the metaverse with a PC or a mobile phone, but you won't be present there. You won't be inside of it without spatial computing. And that is just a fact. Were it not for Meta, were it not for its acquisition of Oculus and its introduction of the, uh, the Meta Quest, we would not be here. I would not be talking to you. So, um, the metaverse, what's it made of and what's valuable? What do we really want uh, to see created and what do we want to own? What's important to us? Well, of course, there's this meta layer, right? The HTML and hyperlinks hold the internet together. That's how we navigate, um, but we don't have the equivalent for spatial computing for us to teleport from one place to the next. And the meta layer, which some people call Web3, that we'll get to that in a minute, uh, which some people call Web3, uh, will supposedly sit on top of the internet. So the internet's not going away, right? It's part of the metaverse. So for example, when I'm in my fully embodied avatar engaged in an activity inside of VR, I want my wallet, I want my costumes, and I want my smartphone to go with me. So the, inter the presence of the internet is persistent and never excluded from the concept of the metaverse. Uh, one other thing that I like talking about, just because nobody is bringing it up, is the spawn point. This is an important concept in video games. The spawn point is the place where you materialize and become present in the video game. So Meta has given this a lot of thought, and uh, they have very rightly uh, arrived at this idea of your home in the metaverse. So when you put on the Quest headset, the first place you materialize is uh, a place that gives you a menu of, of what you can do. But it is a spatial place. You can't really move around in it yet, but Meta has plans to put a home office in there and let you bring in your NFTs and decorate it with JPEGs and I, I don't know, whatever else. Um, but the really exciting part of the metaverse is of course the thing that it inspires to be and the thing that everybody wants a part of, right? This idea of invisible, wearable, ubiquitous computing that is all around us, that takes education and makes it experiential, that allows a worldwide workforce to be trained, um, that enables e-commerce all over the world, uh, and is also a place for sports and entertainment and live music. And who else is working on the metaverse? Is it just meta? Well, it seems that way at times. Apple has not yet played its hand, and that could have a very significant influence. And of course, uh, the biggest companies in the world are in there slugging away at their little piece, at their little view of the metaverse. But we have yet to bring them together in as a whole. Another final thought on how the metaverse might yet emerge. Video games. Um, Fortnite, 350 million players. Call of Duty, 200 million players. Uh, you know, they're doing social things in Fortnite. You've got Travis Scott 
uh, performing a concert attended by 47 million people. If they had all paid 10 cents when they walked in the door, they would have made $4.7 million in 10 minutes. That is the metaverse. So the problem is, of course, having a big M metaverse where everything is connected together is hard. It's really, really, really hard. And so uh, for lots of reasons, I'll, I'll hit them in the next slide, we're going to live for the next dozen years or so inside of a lot of tiny M, small M, metaverses, plural. One will belong to Facebook. There are others that are already maturing uh, that I included on that slide. Uh, and why is it going to take so long? Well, for one thing, it's some of the parts of it aren't invented yet. And the infrastructure that you'd need to host millions of people in a simultaneous simulation doesn't exist yet. Uh, the iOS and Android operating systems are not compatible in many significant ways. Uh, there are international borders. Let's get real. The internet that we look at from North America is very different than the internet that people see in China. So two-thirds of the world is looking at an internet that I have never seen. Um, and then, of course, there are the unintended consequences uh, that follow us whenever we enter a new technology. And uh, certainly the fact that Meta is leading this charge is concerning because they have been particularly heedless of unintended consequences. They introduced, for, ex for example, fantastic AI that allowed me to find clothing and shop really easily because it knew me and it knew what I wanted. And I don't think Facebook realized, and certainly most people in the public didn't realize, that what could sell you t-shirts could also sell you insane conspiracy theories. So uh, there are many, many unintended consequences that could be potentially unleashed by the metaverse. Now, the, everybody wants a piece of the metaverse, right? I mean, it's the hot new thing. You want to get press. You want to pop your stock. You know, it's the metaverse. I've got a pay-to-play crypto game, the metaverse. I've got cryptocurrency. It's the metaverse. I bought virtual land. I'm in the metaverse. So none of those things is true. And by the way, Web3 is a made-up word. Uh, let's talk about 2030. I'm winding things up now, and I'm getting to the so what? Why do you care? 2030, 300 million VR devices in the world. That means 300 million devices not just accessing the metaverse, but giving you presence, a fully embodied presence in that metaverse. And you'll have plenty of choices. There will be thousands of small m metaverses. And meanwhile, all around us in the physical world, things are about to change, right? We're moving from fossil fuels to renewable fuels. Because of uh, the metaverse, or really the internet, um, education is becoming more accessible and free. Uh, work distributed and international. Uh, Big tech companies today, like Meta and Google and Apple, have teams distributed in every country in the world. And those people are collaborating together virtually and being virtually present with one another, even though they'll never meet in the real world. And then, of course, our, uh, we will have, and future generations, will have fewer possessions. They'll have less stuff, and they will replace that stuff with digital stuff and with experiences. Movies will no longer be shown in movie theaters. They will be worlds that we explore. And this is part of a general trend of the physical world turning into the digital world. So how do we prepare for the future? 
Well, one thing I've discovered as an educator is the thing that matters to employers is skills, not degrees. I hope my professors, uh, I hope my supervisors, Chapman, never see this. But really, uh, somebody who learns a game engine in Dubai is going head-to-head -head with one of my Chapman students who's learning Unity under me, and they're going to go head-to-head, -head, and the only thing the employer cares about is how far they got in the Unity education system and how many badges they've earned. I throw out a challenge to my students at the beginning of the semester. If you work on a game engine like Unity or Unreal Engine, five hours a week for 30 weeks, I will get you an $80,000 a year job. So out of 100 students, three have taken me up on it, and I'm happy to say all three of them got hired by the first company I told them to call. Oh, is that the end? I thought I had one more. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening to me, everybody. Hello. Uh, my name is Anastasia Kalinina. I'm a co-founder and CEO of Restate Foundation. My name is Alexandra Seaman, and I'm head of partnerships at the Restate Foundation. And we'd like to introduce the next session that's called the new epoch for governance of digital commons across the metaverse. We at Restate work to reimagine the future of governance and make it more human-centric, participatory, more engaging, more open, transparent, and enabled by technology. We at Restate Foundation believe that it's collaboration, not competition, that may save our humanity. Our fragile world faces so many threats today that it's no longer sustainable to continue dividing the, the society into us versus them. It's just us, humans on this planet, our shared home. We believe that, uh, we believe that helping new technologies, fighting new perspectives, will help us to solve global challenges now and in future. The evolution of technology powered by Web3 presents a unique opportunity right now to reimagine governance as conceived and developed through global collaboration. During this session, we would like to explore how Web3 and metaverses can become new test beds uh, for the future of society. Learning from the fallacies of previous generations of internet layers, Web 1 and Web 2, how do we make sure that the new systems are properly decentralized and open, interoperable and inclusive? We would like to uh, soon welcome on stage the three members of uh, the visionary board of Free State Foundation who are developing and testing and researching the new governance models for the future. They will share some considerations that they have for ethical and moral frameworks that have to evolve alongside the technological foundations of Web3. And we invite you to strategize towards a different world and steward new collaborative futures. This is the first of many conversations that we're planning to have in future. But before that, and before we hand it back to our beautiful, wonderful moderator, let's watch the video to introduce the session. And thank you and enjoy. The human race has been dependent on technology for its survival throughout its entire history. Web 1 and Web 2 have caused the largest paradigm shift to date. The idea of stopping or slowing down is simply not a possibility. So here comes Web 3, which is likely to change us even more profoundly. Web 1 was the static web, Web 2 the social web, Web 3 will be the decentralized web. 
But will it really be decentralized? Web3 protagonists commit to digital freedom through technology. This is not the first such promise. Web1 promised a new horizon of digital space, open, transparent, co-created and interoperable. Web2 promised to democratize the internet through personal websites and distributed network effects. But neither of them have fully lived up to their pledge. So who will be co-creating Web3? Will it be driven by the same qualities in us that gave birth to this? This? And this? Old ways will only create the futures that we were hoping to leave in the past. This is true for both offline and online worlds. The digital ecosystem remains one of the most unequal and dysfunctional aspects of our collective lives. And for now, Web3 only continues that trend. The top 9% of accounts hold 80% of the $41 billion market value of NFTs on the Ethereum blockchain. The top 2% of accounts own 95% of the $800 billion supply of Bitcoin. If it were a country, Bitcoin would have the greatest inequality in the world. Metaverses also may create monopolies of digital space usurping what was once collective. The path we're on today can only be sustained at the cost of even greater inequality, erosion of trust and truth, compromised self-identity and values, and further division within societies. If the structures and incentives underlying our digital ecosystem do not evolve alongside its technological foundations, we will arrive at the same results as we had before, but worse. Collaboration, not competition, can save humanity. Together, we can dream and co-create new governance systems for true digital commons driven by community solidarity, group ownership and an open commons. We need to focus on the parts of the Web3 vision that aren't about easy riches. We need to solve hard problems concerning trust, identity and decentralized finance. And above all, we need to build an interface between Web3 and the real world people live in. Let's play the long game for meaningful evolution and build a digital ecosystem that ensures broadly shared participation and prosperity. Let's make technologies more accessible so that everyone can engage without prejudice accorded by gender, race, ability, class, nation or status. Let's shape the new world of global collaboration as united humans. In this world, you will not be able to divide and conquer. This is governance reimagined, restated. Okay, so many questions, ideas have come up during this Metaverse Forum. Um, and we've had uh, the video here to set up the conversation that we're about to have. Um, just as the stage gets ready, I will say that for this part of the conversation, we will have a 
very brief discussion with my panelists, but then we're going to open the floor to your questions. So please be prepared. If you have questions, raise your hand. We will have a roaming microphone that goes around. I'm sure um, there will be many questions, but where our biggest challenge now is going to be time. Um, so once we are ready, which I believe we are, um, I would like to ask our three panelists to please join us on stage as I um, introduce them. So we have with us Dr. Glenn Weil, um, who is political economist and social technologist at Microsoft. Um, so Dr. Glenn, on, please join us. Um, Ivo Haining, who's creative executive producer, AI, VR and XR strategist, but also is co-chair of the Open Metaverse Interoperability Community and CEO of Playable, and Joel Dietz, who is founder and CEO of Meta Metaverse. Please join us. So, quite an interesting um, conversation we've had so far, or at least ideas um, coming out, but, and also lots of questions. So, one of the things that we heard from Brent from Meta is that there will be you know, other companies in, the same point that Charlie made now, that we still don't know how the metaverse is actually going to play out and be designed. But interoperability seems to be something that's key. Now, you have companies like Apple that really haven't played along with interoperability much um, that, will have to, that, that will have to get used to it. So I want to ask you about open source technologies. Is there going to be interoperability? How does that actually help to level the playing field. Even. Sure, hello. Uh, so thank you for having us, number one. I sit as a co-chair at Open Metaverse Interoperability, which is a W3C community group. Uh, but for the last 20 years, we've been organizing communities for open R&D. And much of the work of interoperability has continually been happening behind closed doors. That includes asset interoperability, but also whole scenes, changing the way the internet is addressed over time, because we are moving from a 2D web to a 3D web. And that changes, for example, things like spawn points and addressability across the board. Um, programmability and portability are also vital. Programmability uh, takes the 3D asset, for example, a model of something you're trying to send to the space station right. and makes those aspects as explicit as possible while making it as portable as possible across worlds so that a single, let's say, design element or a project doesn't have to be stuck in one platform or one small m metaverse. So interoperability is vital when it comes to not just collaboration, but realizing the ideas in this space. And I want to open up the conversation about the metaverse to talk a little bit more about the real world, because there is the immersive web, which all of our amazing speakers have spoken about, but it is also the connection to the spatial web. That is the physical world. That is IoT, things like digital twins. And that is where, where in America we would say the rubber meets the road. That is where things are going to get done in climate emergencies, in disaster response, in conflict resolution. That's where interoperability matters because if we can come together, design things together, and then implement effectively, we can address any challenge together. 
but that, w I mean, that requires also a mindset where you can, you know, this idea of win-win solutions that yes. we should all collaborate. But, you know, there's money at stake, Absolutely. there's interests at stake. Um, there are major companies, I mean, we just heard Meta is investing $10 billion a year in the metaverse mm -hmm. indefinitely. And so then, you know, how much how much is there going to be an openness to, to collaborate and kind of you know, think about the greater good and so the, forth? The open metaverse needs to include not just open source technologies, code, right? But also open space technologies, how we invite interaction and participation, and an open commons. And that is about our public partnerships, not just private companies, but how the public chooses to create spaces where people can come together to form that level playing field. Right now, that does not exist, except are on the web. And most of those spaces are also run by a single company. We know that that does not help us thrive. So if it's owned by a single company, it can be shut down at any time. And that keeps us from realizing the best innovations that we are capable of. So at the end of the day, if we come together in the open commons, right. that is something more than just standards and specifications. Glenn, can I ask you to follow up on that? Because this idea of being pluralistic, open source, working together, I mean, do, do you see that is the direction we're moving in? But also, how can we almost provide the, the guarantees to, to go in that direction, not have it uh, monopolized by one particular company? We might need a mic, please. Okay, they're running with the handheld. Sorry, sorry about that. Um, yeah, I, I think we're actually seeing right now the beginnings of a technological revolution that will affect geopolitics as much as anything since the Industrial Revolution. But it's not exactly the things that we hear people talking about. Right. It's not um, so much AI, which is all about replacing people. It's not exactly crypto, which is to a large extent about replacing institutions, governments, et cetera. Instead, it's something that uh, I want to call plurality, mm -hmm. which is technologies that actually foster connections across individuals into institutions that strengthen the relationships among institutions and, and people. And I actually think this is going to turn out to be much more important than uh, either replacing people or replacing institutions. Um, and I think we see the evidence of that um, more than anything in actually a country mm. that has leveraged uh, these emerging technologies more effectively than anywhere else. It draws upon tools that have come out of AI and out of crypto, but uh, it builds them in a different way that's much more consistent with the principles that Eva was uh, uh, so eloquently highlighting. Um, this is Taiwan. So there the digital minister, uh, Audrey Tong, has built a platform for civic participation in government policies, connecting people across social differences that has been absolutely transformative, that has allowed them to address almost all the big problems that we're facing today more effectively than any other country in the world, whether it be environmental problems, misinformation, uh, dealing with the COVID pandemic. On all of these fronts, the digital participation tools that they have built 
have been incredibly powerful in bringing civil society to address uh, all these problems. And let me just give you a few examples of those technologies. So one is they have a um, way of harnessing the sort of statistical techniques that are usually called AI, but not for just letting machines run away and do things, but rather by al for allowing communities not just to broadcast their views, but to listen broadly mm -hmm. to all the views that are being expressed. And basically, with thousands or even millions of people, have basically a town hall-like atmosphere where you can come to common understanding and common purposes. There are new tools that are central in a lot of what's called Web3 to making the Ethereum ecosystem so vibrant that are new ways of funding public goods and of making collective decisions together. There are ways of harnessing virtual worlds. I like that term better than metaverse for some of yeah. the reasons that Will was getting at earlier, but harness virtual worlds to build empathy and connection across people. And, um, sorry, go ahead. No, but, but I wanted to just pick up on that point yeah. because your, your, I mean, your point about Taiwan and what they're doing and, and yeah. this kind of embracing technology to improve our lives, which is ultimately what most people who work in this field want to work towards. But there's, but that's, how is that distinguished or difference from the metaverse? Or are we getting, am I getting confused by thinking, no, those are two distinct things? Or are they all plugging into ultimately? Well, I, I think virtual metaverse. worlds are a very powerful way for us to build those connections to each other uh, yeah. and to see things from someone else's perspective. But virtual worlds can also be used just as an escapism right. you know, route. So the, the real question is, what's the intentionality with which we build technology? You know, AI wants to build these technologies to, to have AGI, to mm -hmm. surpass human capabilities. A lot of crypto, it's about you know, liberating the individual from all social institutions. There's another conception, which is about how do we actually use these technologies as ways to allow us to collaborate as we've never been able to do before. Thank you. Um, Joel, I want to bring you into it because, of course, one of the themes that we've touched upon today is governance. Um, and, and what does governance look like? How much are private companies responsible for governance in these uh, virtual worlds? How much are, you know, be it, uh, you know, Sony um, or be it uh, Meta or smaller companies, you know, Meta, Metaverse, how do you go about it? Um, you know, so how, what should be done when it comes to governance and how is governance actually implemented in these virtual worlds? Well, I thought Brent said it extremely well earlier, you know, and that at least from an ownership paradigm, the future seems to belong to Web3. I was a sort of very early adopter of Web3, sort of the, the day the white paper, Ethereum white paper came out. And um, pretty much immediately people were thinking about, you know, platforms that were effectively owned by the participants. And in the same thing applied to a, a virtual world. Um, one where the uh, virtual world would also be owned and governed by the participants in that world, right. which is a kind of interesting concept in the beginning, but people have built um, a lot of different types of organizations, um, often called DAOs, um, that exist entirely in a blockchain or Web3 context, are entirely governed by their members, and have their own intrinsic monetization techniques um, that allow them to be very prosperous you know, without necessarily connecting into the brick and mortar world. 
although increasingly they're starting to. And there's even an optimism among many people that they may solve some of the problems that have been neglected in international governance. There's a lot of people working on climate change with respect to DAOs. A lot of these um, standardization, platform standardization. I'm actually on the board of a different metaverse alliance DAO that is looking at interoper interoperable standards for metaverse technology. So I, I would say, you know, it's still early, but there's a lot of optimism, and it's, it's fundamentally different building blocks that are being used. So I'm going to open the floor to questions because I'm worried that we run out of time. So please indicate if you have a question, and we will bring you in. There's a gentleman here, if we can please get the mic. And if your question is to a specific speaker, please let us know. Otherwise, I'll uh, ask to take them. Yeah. I have a question just for the general panel. Uh, how many hours do you stay at Metaverse? And if you have kids, will you allow them? Do you want to take it? Ah, well, I do not have children, um, but I have been in Metaverse Technologies work for about 20 years, uh, sometimes full-time, sometimes five or 10 hours a week. Uh, during the pandemic, I produced about 500 hours of virtual conferences, so that was closer to full-time. Of that, very little was in VR. I can do very little VR because I get headaches from it. So I choose most of my interactions primarily on a computer screen, and then I only use VR when necessary. OK, we have a question here. Kindly bring the mic. Thank you so much. Thank you for your talk. My name is Carlos Fonsipater, and I'm belonging to the Technological Institute, uh, Innovation Institute in Abu Dhabi, uh, working in the sector of telecommunication. So I understand well from what you say that uh, uh, you have clear the ideas how to build the Web3, okay? But uh, my question is how dependent is all this idea for the evolution of the infrastructure? Next, I would say 5G or 6G. Because uh, in our domain, to just build an holographic with all the sense of the people that we'd like to transmit, we need a kind of 4.2 or 4.3 terabits per second. And this is something that actually you couldn't achieve it and you're working on that. So my question is how dependent is all this bring the idea of interaction with the evolution of the infrastructure? And the second question that I have is ethical. So with Web3, we will build a kind of new kind of democracy somehow, learning from what happened nowadays with the 2D democracy, how we can prevent all the, let's say, uh, uh, let's say uh, modifications or alterations of what we are looking nowadays in this 2D democracy for the 3D web. Thank you so much. Sure. Um, so currently, there are many Web XR spaces, for example, where you can go to the metaverse today just on your phone, even using Mozilla Hubs, for example. The challenge is you can have 25 people in that room maximum. There are certain bandwidth challenges, as you've mentioned, and there are firewall issues, there are border issues, there are access issues across the board. Um, Will we get there before 6G? Uh, it's, it's baby steps. And that's why Charlie was saying we're a decade plus away to being able to massively collaborate, to have a deliberative gathering like this in a single space where we can all hear each other effectively is still challenging. And that is where the bandwidth matters. 
to the second part of the question, I think you know the fundamental problem has been that we have not accelerated the design of our social institutions to keep up with our technologies. I think what I was trying to highlight is that there's been some real advances in that. And I think we need to invest very heavily in that area if we want to preserve and extend the role of you know governance. We can't let that just fall behind the technology and invest so much in the technology and not in the institutions we build on top of it. Okay, a question here, please. Hello, I'm Bruna Santos from Brazil, Vice President and Innovation Director at ENAPTI, the National School of Public Administration. And my question is a little bit related to the, this idea of creating the 21st century governance. And it means, uh, what do you think, what the panel thinks uh, is the are the best strategies, the best tactics as well to build, uh, um, to make all these concepts more mainstream among public officials, among public leaders, and especially the decision makers. Mm. Joel, can I ask you to answer that, please? Yeah, I think there's, it's partially just awareness. And, you know, from our standpoint, you know, we're, we're a platform that provides metaverses to many different people. And we're often asked, you know, what should we do in our metaverse? You know, what's going to make it interesting? And, and I always say, you know, that metaverses, uh, first and foremost, you know, it needs to be fun. It needs to be engaging. It needs to be interactive. It needs to provide an experience that people haven't seen, you know. Simply having tea in the metaverse is not that interesting, necessarily. <laughs> um, so really trying to find and, and including, for, for example, game designers or people who have that experience building fully interactive experiences that people come back to because they're interesting. Um, first, and then layering in, in some ways, the utility function um, almost as a secondary feature. That's, that's my typical advice. Thank you. Gentleman there. Uh, hello, I'm uh, the executive director of uh, We Protect Global Alliance, which is the largest global alliance focused on ending uh, child sexual abuse online. Uh, we're looking at this particular crime type, um, just looking at the current internet, law enforcement is totally overwhelmed. We just had a session this morning looking at how AI can, um, can help to handle that. How is law enforcement, how is government, how are tech companies going to handle this new era um, and ensure that um, children in particular are safe and able to use it um, in the best way possible? I'm, I'm happy to recommend the work of colleagues at XRSI. Uh, Kavya Perlman, in particular, has produced uh, not just a report, but a framework to be able to focus on ethics, safety, and cybersecurity. And I think we need to be adopting some of the recommendations in that report from XRSI, particularly. Okay. Um, there was a question here. Thank you. Uh, I'm the president of uh, the Innovation Agency of the Government of Colombia. We have been building a GovTech ecosystem to bring entrepreneurs and innovators closer to the challenges of uh, governance and the relationship between governments and citizens. And I'm wondering how these emerging technologies that we're discussing in this session might uh, accelerate the GovTech uh, ecosystem and how we can enhance the role of entrepreneurs and innovators in participating in creating this new a institutional fabric that we are discussing. Thank you for a wonderful conversation. 
I had such a pleasure working on an innovation sprint in Medellin, Colombia, mostly from the US, using AR to think about what multimodal transit could mean, especially for young people using wearables, for example. That type of global collaboration, using AR on the ground and around the world at the same time, wouldn't have been possible 15 years ago. But because forward-thinking people in Colombia invited us into a process for a city innovation sprint, a coordinated effort, public and private, with investors together, that was able to be successful. So I think you're already on the path, inviting that global participation in your innovation frameworks, and I think augmented reality is the number one tool we have. Our mobile phones right now already give us these tools in front of us. And we, and just say, there's a, as I mentioned, a huge revolution going on in terms of what's possible with civic participation, with technology, and I hope Columbia can be a leader there. I'm going to be in Bogota uh, most of the summer, so look forward to seeing you then. Um, there's a question here. Hi, good, uh, good afternoon. A really interesting uh, conversation here. I'm Simone Filippini, leadership for SDGs. I'm part also of the, one of the global councils here. Um, of course, there's super many positive things to say about a metaverse, but also maybe some risks. Um, and, and what I was wondering, and not only I, but also some others, are we kind of moving towards a new human being? There was a session on mm. alpha kids, uh, the alpha generation, which is being brought up online, uh, super savvy, uh, basically replacing physical contacts by online contacts. This is also a totally online reality creation. Um, so are we moving towards a kind of new human being? And doesn't that then also increase the divide between the haves and have-nots of this world and the inequality that there is and how to manage that also from a governmental perspective? Okay, so don't address the governmental stuff because that's what we want to close with. But Joel, I want to start with you about this idea of living on the virtual world and the impact on children? Yeah, we have uh, some educational initiatives that are well underway, um, both at a university level and at a um, lower level. And particularly, we launched this sort of Mars metaverse um, with some students. And it is being built right by NASA scientists and whatever else to actually simulate life on Mars and give people the skills, which is both very engaging for children, um, but also you know teaching them things that can actually put them in this mindset of a kind of space-age space, space civilization. Um, and I think part of our goal as a platform, including the protocol things, is to make it at a continual level of accessibility. So it is not something that is you know, restrictive by design, but that every kid across the world can have the opportunity to experience. Um, I think technology could absolutely take us in dystopian directions, but I, I think it's important to recognize as well the possibilities that are opened up for making us more human and more open to other people's experiences. So let me just give you two examples. One thing that Jaron Lanier, one of my collaborators, talks about often is that um, language is a very limited bandwidth. Like when we talk, we reduce our experience. But if you just go to a child, they imagine all kinds of things. They have all kinds of experiences they can't express through words. Maybe these technologies can eventually get us to the point where we can embed others into that richness of experience that we have and actually make that humanity that we have actually more shareable than it's ever been even since the inception 
you know, of human language. So that, that's an exciting possibility that it might open up. Another one is that, yes, inequality is very possible, but also empathy is possible. We can use these technologies to make us experience in a richer way than we ever have uh, everything from suffering to joy to just different cultural realities that people live in. And that may give us the chance to bridge those divides. So yes, there are dystopian possibilities, but if we actively pursue those forms of connection, those f forms of richer human experience, I think it can be a benefit uh, along those dimensions. And it, to, to answer the other piece of your question, we are becoming more than we have ever been before, collectively and individually. And what we see with young people is an embrace of plurality, for example, not having a single identity, but having many identities, uh, embracing the right to anonymity as a creator. That is something that has changed fundamentally with Web3 that people have not fully gotten their head around yet. But also, I've been meditating in virtual worlds for about 17 years. It changes the way you synchronize with people. So if you can get in sync with people through music or activity, interaction, you can then collaborate more effectively. At the end of the day, synchronizing, listening. And you said something interesting yesterday about broad listening that I am very interested in exploring with you more. Uh, we, we know about broadcasting, but broad listening, being able to receive all of the words in this room and then parsing that and making sense of it. We have extraordinary potential as we learn to listen better. Question here. Thank you very much. Abdullah Majid from Ministry of Justice. It's an open uh, question. I think it's always raised with the, any new technologies coming to the, to the market. We always try to hold it, understand it very well, and then try to regulate it and to push the policymakers um, to legalize it and bring it to the market. The question that I know that there is certain rules and regulations which is coming to the metaverse. The question, how we can accelerate that? How we can send a clear message to the decision makers or maybe to the policy makers to accelerate um, legalizing and trying to regulate the metaverse technology for the good, for the digital well-being environment. Thank you very much. I think Will I Am is a great example of an accelerator. Uh, many of the people who bring us into the metaverse for the first time are fashion brands, celebrities, the people that we are already magnetized to want to spend time with. But then where we land matters. So if Will I Am brings you to a place where you can redesign the public commons with people all over the world, that's exciting. That's magnetic. So. Absolutely, we already have these luminaries. They are visionaries from all different fields. If we invite people to participate with them, that is exciting. And then how you choose to govern that, that will be iterative along the way. Okay, so we have one last question here and then we need to wrap up. Just at the very end, please. The very end, the lady's been waiting patiently. Um, and then we will wrap up. Um, thank you for your answers to our audience. So hi, I'm a professor of innovation management. I teach at the moment in Rashid School of Government. The question I have is really, maybe I'll start with an observation. 
when we started with virtual worlds and we looked at self-governance, we found it didn't work because people came from different societies, different values, and came together. And the root was escapism, right? So my worry is right now in this metaverse, which is accelerating at an incredible speed of adoption, uh, you're talking Pokemon Go reaching 50 million people in 19 days. Yeah. You're not talking about years or decades. What kind of governance can we put in? And I know they've tried using code and protocols. That hasn't worked because the bugs come out very quickly with these new releases and they go out. We've seen that with the, you know, the pandemic that was in, I think, the War of Worlds and things like that. So really, what are you doing to put a pause so we can get the data, especially on young minds, and realize where the barriers could be? Thanks. Um, I'm, I'm also a research fellow at MIT, and, uh, and we're doing some research stuff at LSE as well. And part of the official research agenda is to figure out how to prioritize from a platform standpoint, not just profit, which is obviously one kind of line item, but also the amount of fun and learning that people have on the platform, and be able to kind of quantify and optimize for those things. So at some level, you know, there's lots of ways to go wrong, you know, pitfalls or people doing repetitive things over and over again. Um, uh, but there's also this huge positive potential and figuring out how to steer things there is a very active research subject for us at the moment. Glenn, anything on that? Um, well, I would just say that I, I think it's not just about hitting pause, it's also about engineering the incentive structure in the right way. Both advertising and subscription models are individualistic models and we're governing social spaces. We're, we're, like, if we want to engineer a social graph that's functional, we should be selling that to someone who cares about that, which are often governments or churches, community groups that care about that social structure. So we need more collective funding. And this gets back to the uh, minister's uh, question before as well, which is I think governments need active engagement in the space, not just regulation. They need to actually become customers that help shape the space. So, Okay, Glenn, I'm, gonna, I'm going to stay with you for the final question, which we have to uh, wrap up with, which is we're here at the World Government Summit. What would be your advice to government, to civil servants, and how they approach um, virtual worlds. Yeah, this really builds on what I just said and, and uh, what Minister Al-Olama said at the beginning, but it, we need the government to act more the way that it did in Web 1 than it, the way it has acted since then. Okay. The government built the internet. I mean, with universities, with, you know, et cetera, but governments were leaders in shaping and creating the space. We need governments to play that role, not letting the private sector take the lead and then coming in and either reactively shutting things down, which is not very productive, or doing nothing and allowing private profit to, to dominate. Thank you. I would add to that, uh, most of the research in our industry over the last 20 years outside of what's happened in universities happens inside corporations and is not available to the public. That means that we don't get the benefit of learning from each other. So to your question, there is fantastic research that's been happening in human factors for 20 years, but we have to make sure that that research happens in the public commons and can be shared in an open way. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree with what Glenn said more. And, you know, there's a lot of open areas for that. So well, how is um, the metaverse going to shape learning? You know, there's some very clear areas where um, virtual reality technology is accelerating learning. Probably other areas where it may be distracting to it and kind of pioneering those things as well as the kind of research that shows kind of how to shape the interests is, is a vital interest to societies. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you to my panelists for a really engaging conversation and for taking so many questions. Please thank our panel. So for our very final segment in this Metaverse Forum, we will be hearing from Professor Marwan Deppa, who is Chief Researcher of Digital Science Research Center and AI Cross Center Unit at TII. He will be giving us brief remarks before we close the forum, so please listen in. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm extremely happy to be at the World Government Summit. My name is Merwan Deba. I'm Chief Researcher at the Technology Innovation Institute. My talk is, about, is going to be about the future, about what's going to happen around 2030, and especially one of the key technologies in wireless called 6G which enables basically the transition from a world where we connect things to a world where we connect intelligence. I think you've been all familiar with what we call the G-waves, what we call generations, and especially one of the key technologies called 2G, which was a mass success in terms of wireless, and for which the aim was to provide mobile for voice, meaning the ability to have a seamless connectivity with calls around the world. By 2000, we started deploying another technology which provided data at each part of the world, uh, which is called 3G. By 2010, we started deploying another technology called 4G, which for which the focus was mobile for internet, meaning having the same kind of experience that you have at home in wireless CDSL, but at any point with mobility. Within the realm of 5G that we're seeing today, especially with the start of 2020, for which we have a massive deployment around the world, our aim was to connect things with a focus around what we call the Internet of Things. This massive amount of objects for which we're gathering with sensors a lot of information and in which basically AI is having a breath in which to play. Today, a new transition is happening in wireless and that transition is called 6G. That transition is not looking anymore to connect objects. The aim is to connect intelligence, and that will be the purpose of my talk, uh, in which I'll be figuring out what are the key technology trends around that and the kind of forecast we're seeing in terms of application of this technology called 6G. If you look at this hyper-connected intelligent world that we're trying to build, there's three big trends that we're seeing. The first one is the fact that the use of waves today and in the future will not be anymore about just sending bits. It's going to be about beyond using bits. One of those beyond things is about especially sensing. The kind of waves that we're using and the frequency that we're using enable us to have massive applications in terms of reconstructing the environment or localization. Second thing also that we're seeing with the waves is the fact that we're still in need of higher bandwidth and higher data rate. And this comes, of course, with use of a lot of higher frequencies for which we can send up to terabyte of information and for which we'll be seeing a lot of applications around 2030. The last one is the convergence of communication and computing. 
That convergence is extremely important in the sense that we're building, thanks to the wireless cellular network, a huge large-scale computer on which the computing is moving more or less towards where the data is rather than the data where, where the computing is. This is a big trend which is happening already in the classical computing arena with what we call post-Vandeman architectures in terms of bridging the gap through what we call in-memory processing. And we'll see how this large-scale computer will enable a lot of big applications uh, in the next years for us. Let's start basically with the sensing capability. Sensing has started with the cameras that we've been using. And as of today, the kind of phones that are being deployed enables you to have a better kind of perception than the classical eye. Now, of course, this is not enough. It's not enough to be able to localize with an extremely high accuracy, but also to be able to reconstruct your environment. The kind of frequencies that we're using today and the breakthroughs that have been made these recent years enable us to start using higher and higher frequencies, going beyond the sub-6 gigahertz frequencies that are used in the classical cellular setting to millimeter wave communication and even terahertz communication. Now, one of the big key aspects about frequencies is that the higher you go in a frequency, the better you can see your environment. And by better seeing your environment, you can have a lot more applications that you can do before. So let me go on a couple of applications. First, what are the kind of applications that we see at the terminal side? At the terminal side, we have, of course, the capability of reconstructing even the molecules that you're eating within a sandwich. And basically, this is enabled to the fact that the waves can see beyond basically the classical realm of the, of the classical wireless communication. Second is infrastructure sensing, meaning using the cellular to be able to reconstruct the buildings that are surrounding us, even the texture which is surrounding us. And this is of course uh, enabled thanks to the data analytics which are behind, because once we see the waves which are sending information and being able to sense, then the data which is gathered is classified, crunched, and then we can get some meaning of that and reconstruct things on our computer. Second thing which I think is extremely important is, of course, the rise of AI. I think you're all familiar with these three figures uh, which, are, which have won the Turing Award in 2019. AI is not new. It started already in around 1956 uh, with a lot of conferences. It went through a couple of winters. But since 1989, we've seen a big rise, especially with the use of what we call deep neural networks. The main reason now it's happening now is because of three things. The first one is the massive amount of data and storage capability that we have on which we can exploit basically all that information. Second is the computing power. And this has been a drastic change on which basically we can compute a lot of information at a very fast rate. And the last key asset is the kind of sophisticated algorithms which has been built up since 1989 with, of course, the advent of deep neural networks, but now a big breadth of new algorithms which enable us to crash, classify the data, and be able also to do some kind of regression and prediction out of it. Now, in terms of impact on the communication systems, well, it's quite immediate. The kind of system that we've been building have been very, what we call, centered, centralized, cloudified in the sense that the huge amount of devices which are in our networks in generally gather data which is sent back to the cloud and which we do what we call the training and then the inference to create models and then conclusions which are sent back to the devices. 
typically this is what you would aim in terms of controlling a car with the 5G systems. Now, of course, with the ability of building more and more AI at each point of the network, we can run those algorithms directly on the devices very far away. And one of the reasons we're doing that, well, there are many cases. The first one is related to what we call privacy constraints, for which the data cannot move out from the device anymore. The second are basically coverage constraints, for which sometimes we're not connected with a device which is far away. And the third one, of course, related to these aspects, is also uh, the latency which is incurred in the sense that we don't have much time before we get the conclusion. And especially in the automotive industry, you can understand how critical those aspects can be. Of course, it changes totally the way a communication infrastructure is built in the sense that we start to have more and more systems which are distributed in how they operate. One kind of algorithms that are being embedded in our networks are what we call distributed AI, enabling, of course, to leverage from the massive amount of devices the kind of data that they have, and in terms of bringing what we call collective intelligence out of a massive number of single intelligence. Other types of algorithms, like feathered learning, are also part of that, in which basically the data does not at all go from the devices, but the model learned from the different devices are federated to create some kind of meta-models, which is then spread across all the network. And this, of course, will create a new kind of supercomputer on which basically we will be moving the computing at each node toward where the data is, instead of moving the data where the computing is. The last point, which is extremely important, is, of course, the classical uh, trend of communication, which is what we call the broadband. What we mean by broadband, well, sending more and more data rates. So why would we need to send more and more data rate in the future? Well, there's many applications that we're seeing for which the actual kind of wireless systems are not enabling that. The first one is everything which is related to holoportation. By holoportation, we're not moving one person to another person uh, in a different place, but we're moving the senses from one place to another place. And rebuilding basically one person in terms of all the different kind of information to another place requires a lot of the data rate. We're talking about terabit wireless. When you're thinking about 5G, which is around 20 gigabits per second in the best case, you're seeing the huge gap that we're having between 5G and 6G. The other also is the ability to provide the data rate at any point in a 3D scenario. Why? Because we're seeing also a lot of what we call flying terminals, which are going to be happening. And this is also extremely putting at a burden our network. And the last one also, in terms of better connection, is basically the fact that we need more and more latency requirements, which are compatible with the kind of application that we're having. And those kind of latency requirements requires less than one millisecond latency. The kind of data that is required also, and I should mention, is also the huge amount of, today, cameras which are deployed, mobile cameras, which are pouring more and more data in our network in the uplink. And this is also a scenario on which 6G will focus on in the next years. Now, how we can do it? Well, we have to go back to the roots. To go back to the roots, I think you're all familiar with the classical system of Shannon of 1948, building basically a communication scheme from a transmitter or receiver. One thing that we not take into account is, of course, the ability to compute that information at the transmitter and receiver and also store it, which changes the whole paradigm of how you do communication. We humans, whenever we communicate, we exploit the past in terms of communications. 
The way protocols are done today do not exploit the past. Every communication is a new adventure or a new call that you make. Whenever we humans communicate, we tend to take the kind of context that we have built to exploit that information in a better way. We start building what we call semantic communication. This is a big trend that we're trying to figure out today at TII and trying to work on it to build up the kind of network which exploit that semantic communication whereby communicating more, you need to communicate less in the future. I think I gave you rapidly an overview of what's waiting for you by the year 2030. With this big shift of our systems of communication for the, um, connectivity which is mostly tailored for things towards a connectivity which is tailored for intelligence. Thank you for listening to my talk and I look forward to be with you next time. Thank you. Well, with that, we conclude our Metaverse Forum. Thank you for all of you who joined us and, of course, for our speakers. I wish you a great rest of your day. Thanks. Stay down.